welcome to the Natural Selection Presents Beaks. Welcome back listeners to another episode of The Natural Selection Presents. We were definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order we have Naomi. Hello. And you have me, Nick. Hello. It's just us two in the studio this week. So Naomi, do you want to tell the listeners who we are? Yes. So we are The Natural Selection. We're taxonomists and we enjoy bringing our passion for nature into the wild and into your earbuds. Each week we meet up and we discuss the natural world. In the first section, we discuss nature news and some interesting research that we find that's come up in the last couple of weeks. In the second section, we talk about a different theme and how that relates to plants, animals, and different organisms around the world. This week's theme is beaks. Thank you, Naomi. So have uh, you run into any exciting nature this week? I was trying to think through what I have interacted with this week. I did actually have a interaction with a bird, but I couldn't identify what species it was. So I was walking past kind of a a hedgerow bush area and I could hear a bird, but I couldn't see it. It was really loud. I suspect it in in my, to me, it sounded like it was a juvenile bird just from the way it was repeatedly calling, but I couldn't see it. So I'm not sure what it was. Curious bird. Yeah. Yeah. Really jealous of people who know what bird it is just from the sound. Yeah, same. I There's maybe one or two birds that I can identify based on sound, and they're kind of basic birds that most people can tell. So, <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. I think I, I've got wood pigeon, crow. I, yeah. I'd take a, pun, a parakeet. Oh, yeah, yeah. A jackdaw, probably. That one, they're, they're quite distinct. The seagull. Parrot. Oh, seagull. Yeah, I've got that down. Yeah. yeah. I think I also could probably tell, like, a, a while I say this, I was going to say I could probably tell a great tip, but I do sometimes mix them up. And also, uh, there are actually birds that have, like, dialects as well. So, like, I learned the Irish version of a blue tit, or a great tit song as well. And it's slightly different to English ones, so it's kind of interesting. Like our accents? Yes. That's fun. Um, what about you? Did you interact with any nature this week? Do you know what? I've barely been outside because for the last seven days in this city, it's just been pouring with rain. It is very much punctuating summer. No more sunshine for you. Inside you go. All your colourful shoes can go back in the closet and back with your leather ones. Other than that, no, I've not really seen much outside of the regular crows, pigeons and sparrows that flock the streets of Berlin. More ladybirds, but again, they were... Mm, Fair enough. So I suppose that's as good a time as any to start with the news. And I believe this week you wanted to talk about the potential downfall of humanity. Yeah, unfortunately, more or less, yes. That's kind of what this week's news is certainly in relation to. So this was a piece of research that was published in Nature, Ecology and Evolution. It was led by a researcher from the University of Cambridge, but it was carried out by researchers from around the world. And basically, it was a global assessment of the drivers 
and the risks associated with pollinator decline. So what they used was something called a formal expert elicitation process. And basically, they got these experts to come up with and evaluate the relative regional and global importance of eight drivers of decline and then also 10 risks based on, on this decline that are opposed to humans. So they found that the top three causes of pollinator decline are loss, are habitat destruction, which is then followed by land management. So this is primarily kind of the grazing, fertilizers, and kind of a crop monoculture. And the third is widespread pesticide use. And climate change was a, a close fourth. So what they found in this study was that they think the most important thing, so part of the reason for this study was as pollinator decline is becoming more obvious, people are really trying to look for responses and ways to come up with strategies and action plans. And this work is hoping to help people come up with responses. So they indicate that kind of the best responses would focus on reducing the pressure from changes in land cover and configuration, and then also the pressures from land management and pesticides. And so they also looked at the risks to humans, and they found that the biggest one across all regions was crop pollination deficit. And so that means that there's a, a fall in the quantity and quality of food and also biofuel crops. Initially, instability was really high in quite a few global regions, so specifically Africa and Latin America, because a lot of these people rely on smallholder farming and pollinated crops from, from this. Additionally, they found that some risks were different in other places. So for instance, managed pollinators was a risk in North America, but not in other places. And they also found overall the risk is a lot higher in the global south and particularly the impact of pollinator decline on wild plants is a big issue, particularly in areas such as Africa, Asia Pacific and Latin America, because often people in these regions, in rural populations particularly, rely on wild growing foods. So this is an issue. And even though they, they have a lot of information about pollinator decline, particularly in North America and Europe, but it also kind of put into perspective that they actually don't have as much information for um, parts of the world in the south. So it's definitely a start, I think, but more work needs to be done to kind of look at what areas need to be focused on. But I thought it was an interesting piece of research. Yeah, I suppose uh, more work needs to be done should definitely follow research, which essentially covers we might not be able to pollinate our food anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've also got some insect news. My insect news, though, doesn't necessarily cover the fields so much as the cities, because this was looking at urban warming and artificial light and how it alters dormancy in the flesh fly. And this is by Ayumi Makai et al. And it was done by Osaka City University in Japan. This looks at a species of flesh fly called Sarcophaga similis. Basically, well, Sarcophaga similis develops during the long days of summer. But during winter, it enters what's called like a diapause in its pupil stage. And diapause is, is a bit like hibernation, but hibernation has a strict biological definition. So it's not really hibernation, but that's probably what the closest word we'd understand to it. Basically, what it does is it's a hormonally re regulated developmental arrest and it's accompanied by a major metabolic shutdown. 
insects that want to enter this diapause accumulate additional energy reserves and these reserves and a limited metabolic rate during diapause allow the insects to survive a harsh or harsher environmental conditions than they had been living in normally. So this could be quite useful, say, in winter when it's colder, it's wetter, there's less food available, that sort of thing. And they were looking at how living in urban environments affected when they entered diapause. They were doing this by comparing insects in rural areas and urban areas. They were also checking the levels of light compared to high levels of light and low levels of light. And also looking at insects that were uh, kept at 20 degrees centigrade and 15 degrees. And they found something quite interesting. That essentially urban environments meant that insects entered diapause later. And this was often accompanied by a higher mortality rate as well. So there are a couple of reasons for this. One is artificial lighting. So when they used lighting in the lab settings, when they found increasing lighting meant that they entered diapause um, I think none of them entered it uh, until November, whereas the, they were normally entering it in October, September. So there was at least a four week delay, which is, yeah, quite a long time. But also it was a being affected by temperature. So higher temperature meant later diapause, which would make sense in the yearly thing if they're going by an environmental trigger. The, um, yeah, a, high, a lower temperature would indicate the beginning of winter. Now, this is important because cities tend to be slightly warmer than the countryside. You get things like urban warming um, due to all the concrete sort of absorbing heat and less likely to sort of get wind chill as well because there's so much more blocking uh, the passage of wind compared to like an empty field. Uh, in fact, this was uh, quite an effect. And they did find that sometimes even lowering the temperature at higher light was enough to offset and perhaps cause diapause at a more reasonable time. But yeah, higher temperature and higher light settings meant that diapause was almost certainly delayed, which is bad news for the insects because it was often accompanied by a, a yeah a higher mortality rate. It means that they're sort of changing their lifestyles to live in our cities, which could cause them problems uh, in the future. So it's something we should perhaps be thinking about when we're thinking about conserving insects that might live in cities. Interesting. That's really cool. I did get a little fixated upon the fact that they were called flesh flies. But after I moved on from that, I mean, interesting as well, I wonder kind of what effect this may have on the populations and whether kind of separating them out like this will have effects on their ability to mix between populations. If they're kind of one in urban areas is going to diapause later, is that going to affect when they are able to mate and, and things like that? It's very interesting. Yeah, very true. Yeah, almost causing like a population line, like an artificial island of uh, of flesh flies. Mm. Which, yeah, do sound much more sinister than fruit flies or even bar flies. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I suppose there's more flesh in the city as well. So. <laughs> cool. Well, on that bombshell, I believe we should get on with our theme, which will be beaks. So please join us after this short break. We'll be back. Welcome back, listeners. We are here this week to talk about our theme, beaks which I suppose for us people who studied evolution and taxonomy, they're actually probably more important than we perhaps immediately consider. Because uh, as I was researching this topic, all I could think was, yeah, I mean, beaks were almost the basis for the theory of evolution. Because if it wasn't for the different beaks of finches that Darwin found on his trip on the Beagle, then perhaps this wouldn't have stimulated his ideas um, or enabled him to convey them so so effectively to the wider population. So something I'd never really thought about as someone who mainly is interested in insects and, and mammals. Beaks 
are a really good visual representation of the diversity of life. And it's not just in finches either. I mean, there's some amazing um, uh, radiations that are pretty much defined by beaks, including things like the the honey creepers from from Hawaii. But yeah, I don't know if you you encountered that uh, when you were researching Naomi. Yeah, definitely. It's it's an interesting topic. I think as well something that I picked up on really before I looked into it, I was really thinking of specifically just birds, but there's actually a lot of other animals that have something we would classify as a beak as well, which I thought was interesting too. But yeah, I thought traditionally I would start us off with a bird, if that's all right with you. Yes, absolutely. And there's a reason I chose this one. So this is Recurberostra avaceta, or avacets. The reason I chose them is that they are the symbol for the Royal Society the protection of birds and they have a really really distinctive beak and i don't know have you ever seen an avocet or know what they look like i don't believe i've ever seen one in real life but i think i've seen pictures and i know i do recognize the rspb symbol basically they've got a curved beak which ends up pointing to the sky uh, it goes straight and at the very end it curves upwards which is where it gets its latin name recurva rostra which uh, essentially means curved beak. Nice and simple, like that one, nice and easy. But there was a reason they were chosen for the RSPB. They were declared locally extinct in the UK in 1840. And around this time, the RSPB was founded. And part of the reason it was founded, actually, a big driver was women's fashion. So there was a huge trend on using feathers in women's clothing because, as you know, like birds, feathers are very highly decorative. So using them in clothing was very sought after. But they were noticing that this trend meant that there was a decline in the number of birds around the world and in the UK. So the RSPB was founded to help protect birds and keep them wild. And it was founded essentially by uh, by women to help uh, to help protect the birds of the UK, which is, yeah, it's an amazing early conservation story. But sadly, the Avocets had gone extinct in the 1840s. So you think, well, why are they chosen as the sort of symbol for the British Royal Society for the Protection of Birds? It's because they had a successful repatriation in the 1940s. And it wasn't entirely deliberate. So this actually followed World War II. Their habitat is mainly brackish water or coastal waters. So there's sort of seawater, there's freshwater, and brackish water is the, the, the water between the two. Where it's slightly salty, but it's not quite seawater. Uh, and that means they live in environments next to the coastline, uh, which was very industrialized in the UK. And often that these environments are at the end of rivers, so their pollution would often build up there. During World War II, they were expecting an invasion from Germany. So what they did is they actually flooded coastal areas back to how they used to be to make it harder for uh, vehicles to land and to prevent an invasion. They also prevented people going to the coast because, uh, yeah, it's a matter of secrecy. You weren't allowed to go to the coast that you potentially be communicating with someone you shouldn't. So it meant there were no humans and their habitat had been restored. Unexpectedly, Avocet started to return. So there was reports of them in 1941, but it wasn't fully recolonized when a load of avocets recolonized Suffolk in 1947, where four pairs nested at Minsmere. And you can still go see them at Minsmere today. And yeah, this population continues to breed. Uh, most of the ones, uh, the largest populations are in Norfolk and Suffolk. They're, they're in the east of England. And they are a wading bird. So as I mentioned, they like brackish water. They can float like ducks and they can hunt a bit like ducks. You know, when ducks 
duck under the water and sort of grab things under there. They can do that. But generally what they really like to do is wade through brackish water, clear water. Um, and if, it, if it's clear enough, they can just use their beak and pick off insects off the surface of the water. Although they have a distinctive hunting method, which is where their beak comes into play. So what they do is they duck their head underwater and they sway it from side to side. And this curved beak churns up the, the bottom of the water and picks up with it little crustaceans and worms and other bits of food that the abacets can eat. So essentially, yeah, they're using this beak as a tool to bring up things from the surface of this brackish water that they're wading through. And that's why it's so distinctive. Uh, there are four different uh, species of avocets in the uh, genus Recurvorostra, and they all feed this way. So they all have this distinctive upwards pointing beak, which makes them really, really distinctive. And they're the only species of birds with beaks like this. So, uh, yeah, if you see one, you know exactly which genus it's from. And nowadays there is a level of protection offered to birds. But the problem with avocets is they're migratory birds. So even if we really, really cared in England, Often they leave. They don't always leave. Some of them actually winter in the, uh, in England as well. So they stay all year round. But many of them migrate to Africa. There's an, these amazing treaties. And one of them is the Agreement of the Conservation of African Eurasian Migratory Waterbirds, which is signed by 37 African countries and 42 Eurasian ones. And this covers waterbirds that migrate between these two countries. So it's sort of like a multinational agreement to protect migratory birds. And avocets are on this list. So now it's not just the RSPB that is protecting them, but there's a worldwide effort to stop them being hunted. Now, sadly, not every country is on this list. So there are countries which still hunt birds which are on their migratory path, including countries like Malta, uh, which yeah, is responsible for a lot of bird hunting uh, and is obviously on the route from Africa to Europe. But it's a great step in protecting birds for yeah future generations. That's really good. That kind of I liked the journey that story took as well from something that went extinct that I like that it also just sort of reintroduced itself as well, which is which is pretty great that it kind of it just arrived back after its its yeah. habitat got restored. So we're going to go from quite a modern success story to a very old extinction story, I believe. Yes. So as we discussed at the beginning of our theme that there are more things than just birds that have beaks and I wanted to specifically look at dinosaurs that had beaks so I actually didn't get as satisfactory an answer as I wanted about what groups of dinosaurs have beaks but from kind of some of the work that I found and some of the research the group of dinosaurs so the ornithischians they are the bird-hipped dinosaurs although confusingly not the group of dinosaurs that birds actually have evolved from or within but they actually, most of them have what would be considered something like a beak. So something that's unique to them is something that's called a predentary, which is a bone that was situated at the front of the lower jaw and it extended the, the dentary. And then also there was something that coincided with, it also coincided with the premaxilla, which is the, the upper jaw, so the very front of the upper jaw. And so this formed a, a beak. And then they often had kind of a keratin coating. So a lot of the, those sort of dinosaurs in this group, so say think of like Triceratops or other dinosaurs like that, they have this kind of beak at the front of their mouths. But one particular dinosaur that kind of inspired me when I was looking at this was something that's called an oviraptor. So it's a theropod. So that is the other group of dinosaurs, the Saurischians, which are lizard-hipped dinosaurs. And so this dinosaur got a little bit of a bad reputation. So it was found on top of eggs. 
And they decided that, therefore, that meant that it was an egg thief. And its name, the first of the species that was found, so the type and genus species, is called Oviraptor philoceratops. Because they believe that the eggs it was found on top of were ceratopsian eggs. So they thought that it was a thief and an eater of these this other dinosaur's eggs. So its whole name, and so additionally, Oviraptor means egg thief or egg caesar. What's really interesting is that actually, and there's some cool specimens that have been found, they've been able to identify it as a male and a female, and they're in the American Museum of Natural History, and they've been coined Sid and Nancy. <laughs> but what what actually has been discovered since then is that the eggs that were, they were found on were their own eggs. So they're not egg thieves, they're actually parents and they were looking after their eggs and actually looking after them until whatever catastrophic event caused their death and then turning into a fossil. So this also then inspired me to kind of look for other research about dinosaurs with beaks and a piece of research that I found that was quite cool that was published in Science in 2017 was looking at sauropods. So this is a big long-necked huge dinosaurs and they are herbivores as well. And there's kind of been a little bit of a mystery attached to parts of their fossils that have been found. So they've often been found, their teeth have often been found in in a position. So kind of they find long rows of isolated teeth, but still attached to each other, which is weird because they're not attached to any bones. So why have they not become, why have they not become separated and scattered around this site? So from this and other pieces of information, such as kind of the fact that upper parts of their teeth have been like show signs that they've been covered or unexposed and undamaged, they suggest that actually they may have used beaks. They may have encased their their large, long peg-like teeth with kind of a keratin beak instead of the the kind of more reptile-like lips that they thought they initially had. They may have actually had kind of a a beak instead, which I thought was pretty cool. So that's my little roundup of some dinosaur beaks. I suppose I always find these interesting with the developments and what dinosaurs look like, because museum model makers just cause must get so annoyed. <laughs> I think so, yes. <laughs> Go on, sir. What do you mean they have feathers? This one had beaks? What? <laughs> yeah. Um, but with the Oviraptor, just one last thing, actually, they they could potentially eat eggs, but it may be more likely that they ate maybe crustaceans or hard fruit or something instead. Okay. Crustaceans or hard fruit. Yeah, something because they do think the beak was, was useful in some way, but they probably weren't eating eggs. So at this point in the show, we're going to try something slightly different. and We're going to go to Nick for an outside report all the way from Malta. Hi, Nick. Hi, Naomi. Hi, everyone listening today. We're trying something new this week. We're going to do a little bit of field reporting, so you can hear some nature sounds behind me as I'll do my recording this week. Uh, But I'm reporting live from Malta. I have yet to see a falcon, but I wanted to talk today about another kind of bird with a sharp beak and a quick dive. Kingfishers are one of my favorite groups of birds, partly for their reclusive nature and partly for their beautiful colors, but mostly for their incredible beaks which can look a little oversized at first glance, but turns out they do some pretty amazing things. 
Kingfishers, as you might guess from the name, are one of the final holdouts of the old riparian monarchies. Wait, wait, no, that's not it. Hold on, I have the notes for the wrong podcast here. One second. Ah, yes. Kingfishers, as you might guess from the name, are excellent hunters of the watery variety. They live along riverbanks and in reedy areas, hunting small fish, insects, and other invertebrates that live in and around the water. To do this, they often have to dive into the water at high speeds to catch their prey living below the surface. Unfortunately for the kingfisher, fish and many other water-dwelling animals are well adapted to escape this sort of hunting strategy. They're able to feel compression waves from predators in the water around them, and they're especially sensitive to the sort of quick, forceful wave that's caused when something hits and enters the water at the surface. But the kingfisher has figured out a majestic, some might even say royal, way around this. Its beak is shaped like a long spike with a point at the end and an almost circular cross-section that gets gradually thicker as it approaches the head, but it's quite long. So this allows the kingfisher to enter the water as it dives almost without a splash, and more importantly, without compressing the water as it enters. It slices it open rather than pushing it forward. Uh, And it doesn't alert the fish, their fishy prey, that they're fast on their way to lunchtime. One of my favorite things to bring up when we talk about morphology on this podcast is biomimicry, which is when human designers, engineers, and artists take inspiration from natural forms and processes. One problem that some of these researchers have recently encountered, particularly the engineering team building high-speed bullet trains in Japan, uh, is that when these trains zip in and out of tunnels, there's a mini sonic boom that happens as the train crosses the barrier of the tunnel entrance. There's a huge pressure difference of, and the air resistance changes at the edge of these tunnels. So when the train enters the tunnel, it enters a different pressure system, and when it exits as well. Uh, so it encounters a sort of this barrier at the tunnel entrance. After doing some research looking for the most efficient shape for these trains, researchers were inspired by the kingfisher. They looked around the animal kingdom, specifically looking for animals that move quickly from low to high resistance medium from, in this instance, air to water, and tried to figure out how they do it. And after doing many different design tests and trying to do different modelings using a supercomputer for space travel, uh, this team found that the shape of the beak of a kingfisher was one of the most efficient body plans that they could use for this to design their trains after. So they made the ends of their trains sharp like a point, uh, like the kingfisher, they got gradually thicker as it approached the body of the train uh, with this almost circular cross-section, just like the kingfisher's beak, and found that their trains made less noise when they entered and exit tunnels, and they ran more efficiently, too. So, beaks can be useful for kingfishers, humans, but not so much for those fish. That's all from me for now. Back to you, Nick and Naomi. Brilliant. Uh, Thank you for that. Now, I'm going to go on to my second topic. A bit like you, Naomi, I'm going to step away from birds and I'm going to talk about a different type of beak, but even further away from birds than you, because I'm going to go to cephalopods and octopus beaks. So even though octopuses have beaks, they're not exactly the same as bird beaks. They do look quite similar. Like If you look at them, they almost look identical to how a parrot beak looks. They're sort of two overlapping, very pointy um, beak things that, that they use to sort of grab their, grab their prey. 
But they're not made out of keratin, uh, like Naomi mentioned for birds or other raptors. They're made out of chitin. So even though it looks very similar, chemically, it's also completely different. And all cephalopods have them. That includes the squids, the octopuses and the cuttlefish. And I believe the nautilus as well. And they are indigestible. And this is important for researchers because obviously cephalopods make up an important part of the diet for other animals. And while we might struggle to find some species of cephalopods, we often find their beaks in the stomachs of other animals. Most poignantly, whales. Most famously, sperm whales, which is how we know how big some squids can get. Because very occasionally we'll get a giant or colossal squid that will wash up on the shores and we're able to get a measurement. We're able to look at its beak. But uh, the largest beak we've ever found was actually in the stomach of a sperm whale, which is used as evidence that these squids get bigger than we've ever seen. Yeah, they're, they're quite useful in that regard in sort of understanding the population because they can't be broken down. But interestingly as well, I, I, uh, we've mentioned this many times, but this lack of breaking down is also important to humans because this can sometimes cause a blockage in the sperm whale's um, digestive system, which eventually is evacuated, I think is the nice way to put this, and washes up on the shore. And if you find one of them, you can make a lot of money because uh, that is ambergris. And we use it in the production of very, very fancy uh, perfumes. So very, very fancy perfume is essentially made from the beaks of giant squids. You see why it costs so much. They're actually quite an amazing structure. And the reason being is squids and octopuses are soft. They're not hard. They don't have a skeletal structure like us, but their beaks are hard. Now, this causes some problems. Because if you imagine, if you were holding jelly and you tried to squeeze some pliers, you would think the jelly would get damaged as the pliers closed. So... This, how could the octopus possibly squeeze its beak shut without damaging itself where the beak connects to its body? And it does it in the most amazing way. Even though it's made of chitin, the levels of chitin are not consistent throughout the length of the beak. So there's four key ingredients for the beak, which is water, proteins, chitin and a dark pigment. Uh, The base of the beak is actually softer. So it's mostly water. It's about 70% water and 25% chitin. But towards the tip, the amount of both water and chitin falls and the levels of protein and pigment increase. uh, And the beak essentially gets harder. So it's very, very hard at the tip and very, very soft at the bottom. The stabbing point contains 60% protein and 20% pigment, which accounts for its sort of very dark color when you see an octopus's beak. The end will be much darker than the base. So it's sort of a brilliant bit of mechanical engineering, which means it doesn't tear itself apart. It's eating. But it is made of solely organic materials. This is quite impressive because it outperforms anything that humans can make. Yeah, it's uh, essentially it's outperforming us in its ability to create organic materials to be this tough, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, they use it uh, in quite amazing ways. So they've only just discovered, uh, I say only about 10 years ago, that every octopus is venomous. So there's the famous ones like the blue ringed octopus, which you often hear about is the deadliest octopus. But every octopus is venomous. Just generally, they're not trying to poison us. They're trying to poison their prey, which is things like clams or fish. Some octopuses use their beak as a weapon as well. So the Humboldt's beak is powerful enough. What they do is they grab a fish, they bring it to their beak, and then they snap the fish's spine with their beak so they can eat it. So it is a very, very powerful cutting tool. But as well as that, it's also venomous. So, yeah, a little insight there in some octopuses' beaks, which uh, we don't often think about uh, when we think of beaks, we think of birds. But, yeah, octopuses are swimming around. And often that is their only limiting factor in which hole they can swim through. 
is it has to be larger than their beak. Every other part of it can compress, but their beak can't. Cool. And it never really occurred to me as well that obviously it's going to be an issue for something that's soft bodied like that to have a part of it that that is hard, that it could effectively cause itself damage. But it's it's really clever the way it's kind of overcome that. And also the piece of information about all octopuses being venomous. Didn't know that either. That's cool. Yeah, that was such a surprise to me. But luckily, anyone who's got a fear, they are generally not harmful to humans. But some of them are. But I suppose if you've got a fear of octopuses, if one does attack you, I don't I don't think your first thought would be, thank goodness it's not venomous. So perhaps that wasn't as reassuring as I'd hoped it would be. I feel like they could still kind of damage you anyway. They feel quite strong and, I don't know, suffocating. Yeah, there's, you get told when you're learning to scuba dive that because um, they have suckers, even the smaller ones, if they grab your face, they can take your breathing apparatus out quite easily. So that's fun. So, uh, yeah, good luck. Good luck, everyone. <laughs> but they're the most terrifying thing in the world with a beak because uh, we all know what that is. And that has inspired Naomi to choose this as her last topic, to face hers and what she assumes is everyone's fear geese yes i do and rightly so if anyone's a reoccurring listener of this show they probably will be aware that it's a bit of a running joke that i have a fear of geese it's a mild fear but as we may discover from this segment valid so the thing i wanted to talk about was (laughs) geese teeth now do geese have teeth no they actually don't but if you google geese teeth you'll see something that looks effectively like teeth but what this actually is is called tomia with the singular is tomium basically it's serrated cartilage on the edge of their mandibles so the mandible is a jaw and there's a their upper jaw has a coating of keratin on top of it and attached to this is cartilage and it's serrated and this helps them eat their food they also have some on the roof of their mouths and additionally they also have some extra cartilage i think it has a slightly different name when it's on their tongue, but they also have some on the edge of their tongue, which definitely gives a very sinister appearance as they squawk at you. But when I was reading this article, and actually a lot of what I found was actually on kind of, it looks a little bit like a clickbaity article, but it really didn't help my fear because it was, you know, discussing kind of geese teeth and what they actually are. And then it started going into how to prevent geese attacks and what to do if a a goose starts attacking you. So that was a little bit frightening. Um, but the moral, yeah, basically hold your ground and walk slowly backwards. That's what I've learned. But interestingly as well, when I was looking at geese and their beaks, I stumbled across this. So it was a piece of research from the British Ecology Society, and it was published in 2017. And like what you were saying, Nick, earlier about how beaks have been really important with natural selection, and the understanding of natural selection, rather. And it's interesting because they're a really good example. They show that the more adapted a beak is to a certain type of food, the better they do, and they pass on this advantageous trait. And they've been studied a lot in this way. However, the way they've been studied has often been in passeriforms, which are kind of songbirds and that group. And additionally, kind of what they found is that actually the associations with feeding have been a lot to do with size rather than shape, particularly in, in the groups been studied in so far. So what this piece of research was looking at instead was looking at anseriforms, the order that is waterfowl. So this includes geese, swans, ducks. 
and this hadn't been looked at before. So I wanted to look at whether feeding ecology affects the shape rather than just the size. And they found that, so they looked at 42 species in this order, and they looked at the 3D curvature of the upper beak, and then they looked at kind of continuous dietary data. And so what they found was that it was strongly correlated between diet and beak shape in this group. So they also found that the ancestral beak shape, and what they were able to reconstruct from the fossil Presibiornis, so that's kind of the ancestral anseriform was more duck-like and it seemed to suggest that it had like a filter feeding lifestyle and then so from this there's been an evolution or and a convergent evolution of several geese-like beaks from this ancestral duck beak form and interestingly they found that this kind of more goose-like beak is associated with eating more leaves and then eating less invertebrates so this has kind of improved the mechanical advantage of the beak. And they also found that there was no really difference in size. So size and feeding ecology didn't really seem to have any effect. So they suggest that maybe size is some other sort of factors affecting that instead. But yeah, I, I braved geese for this episode and was a little disappointed, but it was also quite interesting. Well, I think at least now you know what to do when the geese will inevitably attack. Yeah, well, you know, I'm hoping they won't attack me because I have a respectful avoidance of geese. Also, one one thing that did come up in the article was don't let children chase geese. And I found that upsetting that that's kind of not something people just immediately don't do. Yeah. Well, are you more worried about the geese or the fact that the, this will anger the geese? Uh, the geese will associate anger with humans and come after you. I wasn't really so much worried about me. Well, I was worried... For the child, that they would be attacked by a goose, and this, well, one gives geese bad reputations, because I'm sure that goose wouldn't end up too good after it attacks a child. And, yeah, it's just, it's just not a good practice to be attacking wildlife. <laughs> Generally, no. Good advice from the Natural Selection presents, and probably the best note we will ever have to end on. Um, but we will be back next week where we'll be talking all about extinctions, which is fun. But until then, from everyone here at The Natural Selection Presents, it's goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. I have to say, when you first said it, they were either, uh, oviraptors were either egg thieves or egg Caesar. But I thought, like, Julius Caesar? I was like, that's such a cool name. <laughs> but no, I know what you mean now. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually funny when you said a bass to me that made me think of a salad.